Again, this is Romans 12, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. The next scripture we're going to read is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll give you a second to get there. So it's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, I want to say thank you guys so much for being here, especially if it's your first time. Thanks for making us a part of your week. We're excited that you're here, and um, if you do not have a home church, we'd love it if you would just get connected here. You can do that by filling out one of the connect cards in your seat back in front of you, Um, and I always try to give that uh, indication at the beginning, so in case towards the end you've forgotten, you can go ahead and start filling that out. So like Jenna said, we have been in a series for the last couple of weeks called The Church, Uh, And this morning, our topic is going to be about membership, membership in the church. So last week, we talked about what is the church, um, and this week, we're going to talk about how the church is ultimately made up of members. And so um, we're going to try to answer three major questions this morning about what does it mean to be a member of the body of Christ or a member of the church. Number one, is church membership biblical? We're going to talk about that. Uh, Number two, what does it mean to be a member of the church? And then number three, the why behind the what, or why is it that... Uh, Christ would call us into church membership, particularly in a local body or a local expression. So before we jump in, if you'll bow your heads with me, I'd love to pray, ask the Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts uh, and to ultimately do what I can't do this morning. So if you'll, you'll bow your heads. Father, we are so very grateful for your word. We're grateful that we get to go to your word for truth and that we don't have to feel around in the dark, Lord. We thank you that your revelation is, is forever. And Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds as we read your word. Would you challenge our preconceptions about what it is to be members of your body? Uh, Would you help us, as Paul says in Romans, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to um, be willing to humble ourselves, to be dependent on you first and foremost, but also, Lord, to be willing to be interdependent on one another. And finally, God, we just ask that your vision for what the church should be would prevail. Your vision for what the church is meant to do would stand. And that, my God, here as a local expression of your body, that providence would do so in a way that brings joy to us and glory to you, God. We love you. We trust you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is one of those kind of dark horse controversial topics. Like you wouldn't think, okay, you're gonna talk about church membership. It's not really a big deal. But here's what I have found about particularly church membership uh, in a local context is that some people are, are opposed to church membership like viscerally. Uh, and, and I never uh, 
expected that when I became a pastor or whenever we planted a church. The third is just a, a pushback when you begin to say, hey, we want you to, to commit and covenant in as a church member that some people just say, I want nothing to do with that. I'm not interested. I can love Jesus without being a member of the church. I'm okay with attending, but I don't want anything to do with that. And then there are other people who maybe are totally okay with being members, but they don't take it maybe as seriously as they ought to. So they're just like, oh, no big deal. Maybe sign on a dotted line and they don't really take that commitment seriously. And then on the other hand, there's some people that take that signing on the dotted line so seriously that it's off-putting to everyone around them and they think you know, way too seriously about uh, what it means uh, to be a member. I know that, that may be controversial in and of itself because I do believe that membership is very serious, but I think sometimes they, they overdo it in a way that might be a little bit unhealthy. And so this is one of those kind of dark horse controversial topics when you start to talk about church membership. Seems pretty... Uh, pretty mild and pretty tame. And I think some of you might even be thinking, uh, why would I want to listen to a pastor talk about church membership? I think it's a fair question. Like, of course he's for it, right? <laughs> he's paid by the church, right? That's what everybody is probably thinking right now. So I want to go ahead and like lay that out there that I get that, okay? Um, and, and in one way, I could see how it'd be really self-serving for me to come up and talk about and discuss church membership. But I also want to contend that church membership is so much more than just a power play, or a, or a prestige play, or a money play by Christian elitists. Um, I truly believe that church membership is a biblical mandate, and it's one that is meant to help every believer grow and mature in Christ. I believe that with all my heart. Um, and I wanted to mention before I jump in, I think I'm trustworthy for a couple of reasons so that maybe I can gain a little bit of trust back. I'm not just uh, unobjective here. Number one, I did not grow up in the church. So I had no church background uh, when I was a, y- a young person, I grew up in a household uh, that predominantly probably had some similar views to what I just communicated for people that are viscerally against the church. Um, my parents you know, very rarely ever talked about the church, but when they did, it was mostly like, the church doesn't need to mediate my relationship with God, therefore we don't really have to go there. Or um, you probably have heard this before, the church is a bunch of hypocrites, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that. Um, that's true. Me too. Um, Church is a bunch of stuck-up do-gooders, right? Uh, and, and, and that was kind of the, the feel, the climate. But I will say, most of the time, my family growing up, just we didn't even talk about it. We just kind of lived apart from the life of the church. I didn't really know uh, much about the church. So when I first came to know Christ and I started to see like church culture for young people, it was really shocking to me that there is kind of a whole subculture of young people that are raised in the church. And I, and I think about it now, you know, my son will be one of those. But I joke about it sometimes, you know, like the Iwanas kids, right, that have like, they have like Bible, Bible verses memorized. They have songs they knew. Like they got a whole other playlist on their iPod of like songs they learned as kids. They got sashes. They got a whole outfit. I didn't know that. You know, I, I, when I came, into, uh, came to Christ and came to the church for the first time, I realized that I didn't belong in some ways. I didn't know, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. I didn't know that song uh, until much later. And so when I, when I think about church membership, I'm not coming from this like long entrenched background in the church where it's just what you have done. That was not my experience. Uh, and then the second reason I think that maybe I'm a little more objective is because of my lack of church experience, I didn't come in with a jaded view of the church either because I just didn't know. I just didn't have any experience there. So even if my parents may have had some bad church experience, I didn't. So when I came to Christ, I came without any spiritual baggage on the way when I first attended church. Like I didn't have any church hurts. I didn't have any church bad experience. Now I've made up for lost time since then, okay? I have since then. 
However, when I first came in, it was all brand new to me. I was like, this is legit. People come together and, and they, they try to help each other. I like this. We get to sing songs to Christ. I had this newfound love in my heart. I loved the idea of singing songs to Jesus. I loved the idea of hearing the word preached and I got to learn and grow and understand more about it. So it was all very new to me. And so I'm gonna try to approach this as objectively as I can as a pastor who truly cares for you uh, because I didn't have all of that church experience coming in. So when I talk about me being really convinced about church membership, I say that from a, a standpoint of not really knowing what it was until I came to know Jesus. So point number one is this. Church membership is biblical. Church membership is biblical. And I'm gonna try to give you maybe three good reasons. There's probably 70 I could give you, but I'm gonna try to give you three good reasons why I see in the Bible that church membership is biblical. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter number 13, which should be a right-hand turn from where you were earlier when Jenna led us. Hebrews chapter number 13, and I'm gonna read verse 17. The writer of Hebrews towards the end says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So before I hop in here, the first thing that I see of why church membership is biblical is in your New Testament, what you'll find is that over and over and over again, the writers of the New Testament are writing to particular people in a particular context about particular issues and then asking them to apply that in that context. And I don't think that what the uh, apostles intended was that it was supposed to be a blanket statement on anyone who ever came in contact with that group. Like they actually knew that there was a group of people that had committed together in this area to follow Jesus, right? And they didn't expect, we know this because Paul says even in Corinthians, he doesn't expect outsiders to act like insiders. And I just wanna pose this to you. How do you know who an outsider is if there's no in? Does that make sense? He says, why are we trying to put our expectations on outsiders like they should act like insiders? But if there is an outsider and an inside, then we gotta know what that is, and I think that's church membership. So it starts to frame the way that you look at your New Testament. When you get beyond the Gospels and the book of Acts, every letter that's written is written to this context of the church at Galatia, the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, part one, the church at Corinth, part two. There's all of these people that have committed together in, these, in this particular context to follow Jesus, and Hebrews is no different, as, as Paul, uh, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews writes here, to the Hebrew Christians in a particular area, and he asks this question, or he actually commands them to obey their leaders and submit to them, because those leaders will give an account. So two things that I get from this that I'd like to ask the question of, and this is something that our elders kind of wrestled with, and I would say it's one of the top reasons why we consider church membership to be important, and it is this. Number one, do you think the writer of Hebrews is telling Christians that they ought to submit to every church leader across the world over? Anyone who counts themselves a leader in the Christian world, you have to submit to them if you come into contact with them. Think about that for a second. There are some quirksters out there, are there not? Anybody else? Like, let's bring the marriage, uh, the marriage analogy in. What if your husband was not the only one? You're just supposed to submit to every husband everywhere. Now, that would be bad for you wives, right? You're, you're already looking at your husband. You're like, I don't even like him that much, much less somebody else's husband, right? No, I would imagine that the writer of Hebrews is not saying that we're supposed to submit to every church leader everywhere across the spectrum, all the way across the world. There's a particular group of leaders, set of leaders, that, these, that have committed themselves to these people at this time that they're supposed to submit themselves to. Now, let's reverse that. And this is something that even scares me to this day. 
who are the souls that those leaders are supposed to give an account for? Do we think that that's every single Christian they've ever ministered to in their life? Could you imagine how intense that would be for Billy Graham? I, I, I don't believe for one second that Billy Graham lived his whole life thinking that the thousands of people that came to know Christ under his crusades, he had to give an account for their souls. That'd be terrifying. Can I be honest with you guys? I told you guys this last week. When I was in student ministry, we used to do these big, major evangelistic outreach events called The Awakening, where we'd get hundreds of kids, sometimes thousands of kids, to come in, and I would be able to preach the gospel to them. Do you know, if, if, they, if this text means that I'm responsible for all of those souls, that terrifies me to my core. Because I've had some really good experiences with that, where I've gone to, like, Chick-fil-A or something, and a kid will come up to me and say, hey, you're The Awakening Pastor, which, by the way, that's weird. An odd title. <laughs> like, yes, that's me. My name's Court, actually. You know, nice to meet you. And then, you know, I can't, I know Christ at one of those things. I'm still serving at my church. That's encouraging. You know, for every one of those, though, there's all, there's all sorts of ones I don't know. So that kind of scares me. And, and I don't think that's what the Bible is saying here. I think that because the New Testament was written to particular local leaders in particular contexts, dealing with particular local issues, and there seems to be expectations for a particular people that they are caring for. And so here at Providence, the way, that we, the way that we look at that is saying church members were responsible for caring for church members. Now, does that mean that we don't care about anyone else? Well, absolutely not. It doesn't mean that we don't care about somebody who's not a church member, but we are responsible in the same way that you're, you love all children, hopefully everywhere. All right, there's some asterisks, but hopefully you love all kids everywhere, but you're responsible for your kids. You know what I mean? Like when you go into Walmart and you see kids that are losing their mind, like they're standing on top of the counters and stuff, and they're not your kids, you just kind of walk by. You're like, well, hope that works itself out. <laughs> but when your kid does it, you know you're ready to drop a bow, right? It's your child. You're responsible for this crazy. All right, that is what the Bible calls us to as, as leaders. And so it would seem that church membership is not just biblical, but it's essential because if I'm right about church membership, that is the context through which the entire New Testament is written. These local expressions of Christ's universal body that are committed to doing life together, that are committed to following Jesus together. And that when you start to read the New Testament, you start to read through the letters, what you're getting is these actual particular contexts that are dealing with particular issues as they do life together in their city or their town. So when you start to read, like, the, for instance, you read Corinthians and, the, and Paul's it, it, addressing these issues about how some people are getting drunk on the communion wine. <laughs> You'll notice that, of course, that can be applied across the board, right? But I imagine because Paul doesn't address it in Ephesus, he doesn't address it in Galatia, he doesn't address it, in, that maybe it was just Corinth that was getting a little too tipsy on the communion wine, right? Why? Because that's a group of people that had committed together and if you're going to commit together, what it means is that you're a member of this body, right? Okay. So, it's my contention that most, if not all, arguments against biblical membership uh, in the local church don't really come from the Bible. Uh, they come from a few things. And I want to mention them because I think they're real things and I don't want to make them trite. Number one, from seeing authority abused. A lot of people are scared of church membership because they've seen authority, even spiritual authority, abused before. And so when they think church membership, they think, oh, no, that's scary. I don't like the idea of someone being able to tell me what to do that might be a nut, right? Okay. Number two, we live in a culture that struggles to commit in general. So this might be a little bit of the younger generation, but we're just kind of struggle with commitment. Uh, there's one of my favorite lines in this uh, TV show called The Office where one of the characters is like, you know, I just struggle with commitment. And he's like, all right, man, well, just let me know. You know, you don't have to do it. No, because not committing is just as much of a commitment. 
and he doesn't know what to do. It's like this internal, like, you know, existential struggle that he has about commitment, right? That's how we are. Um, we struggle with committing to things in general, and so therefore the idea of church membership scares us a little bit. Um, or the last one is just to des- a desire to skirt biblical commands rather than just taking the Bible for what it says. So I think that sometimes we have these things like, well, I don't have to have that. I don't have to have the church. I don't need people. I just can love Jesus and do my thing. And really, those are all just euphemisms for, I don't really want to do what the Bible's telling me to do. Uh, I want to do my own thing. So it comes back to the issue with authority, even if you've never been abused by authority, right? Now, the issue with authority, I want to make, I want to make mention of this. Uh, I grew up uh, at 12 years old, lost my dad. I've told you guys that story a number of times. So I grew up with an issue with authority that I didn't even know existed. But I, I always wanted to skirt authority. My mom was afraid that I would have a behavioral issue after my dad passed away. She was completely right. I went to a Christian school, got kicked out of that Christian school because I just couldn't follow rules, basic rules like don't talk, don't you know, come to school on time, wear a belt. I had a uniform. So wear a belt, wear a you know, chapel shirt, all that stuff. I just couldn't follow basic rules. I had issues with authority. But what I realized later on in life when I was able to look back after coming to Christ is that even though I had issues with authority, I also was wired in a certain way where I actually kind of longed for it. Uh, Because if you're a parent here, I just want to tell you, kids need boundaries and they even thrive on them. Um, Your your children actually need boundaries. So I know our culture is kind of swimming in this idea that you don't need to parent your kids, just let them kind of figure it out on their own. Do you know that's chaotic and dumb? Kids don't figure things out on their own, all right? They they don't just figure out how to do life. Like they need parents to set boundaries to help them. And it's no different as you're growing up. We need those boundaries. We need someone to set authority over and against us. So just as a side note, a parent, uh, you need to not only embrace your authority, but exert your authority at times. That's what love looks like. Okay, off my soapbox. So what I found is that I loved sports not knowing that it wasn't just because I loved to play the sport itself, but because I actually enjoyed the authority that was there, the structure. I liked the idea of even whenever I would get ripped on, I could go back and try to get better at it, that this person was invested in me actually growing. This person was invested in me getting better, and that when I got it right, there was encouragement. So yes, I got ripped on, but on the back end of that, there was encouragement when, I, when it landed right. And so this idea of authority was woven into my desire to be in sports from, uh, from the moment that my, I was really, really young all the way up until I graduated high school. I always joke with people to say I probably wouldn't have graduated high school had it not been for sports. The only thing that made me, uh, you know, want to pass. So the whole pass-fail thing, that does work. By the way, can't play unless you pass, that works. So I want to to encourage you and ask you this question. When you think of church membership, maybe the most important question you should ask is, why do I feel the way I feel about it? Why do the, why do, if you feel negatively about it, why do I feel the way that I feel? So here's an example. Well, I've watched the church abuse people for years, or I've been abused by the church. Well, um, those are real issues. And I want to say, I'm brokenhearted that that was your experience. Like I said, I've made up for lost time and being hurt in the church. However, you might remember and consider that we don't always reject things altogether just because we experience their downside. An example, this is a trite one, but it might be you go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and you order a specific sandwich and you come on the back end and they didn't actually do your sandwich right, right? You come out and you're like, my gosh, honey mustard, one request, right? And you're frustrated, right? And they're like, my pleasure. And you're like, it's not my pleasure anymore, right? Now you gotta go back around. Here's what I would say. Most people don't say, I'll never eat here again. I'll never come back to Chick-fil-A. Now, there might be some, but most people don't do that. Okay, I'll take it a step further. Most people also don't say, I'm done with fast food in general. Never again will I do fast food. I'll take it a step further. Almost no one says, I'll never eat out again because they ruined it for me, right? 
Almost no one says that. I'll take it another step further. Almost no one says, I'll never let another person cook my food, only me from now on. And I'll venture to say, no one says, I'm done with food. Right? Why? Because when we value something, when something's valuable and it's necessary, we're willing to push beyond our experiences in order to gain what's really valuable to us. And I would say that church community is not only value, it's necessary for our spiritual growth. It's necessary for our souls. And therefore, we push through by the grace of God, by the strength of God, we push through some of the experiences that are really serious. You know, Chick-fil-A and the drive-thru are really trite compared to some of us and the experiences that we've had. But by God's grace, we can push beyond those because we accept and embrace the fact that living together, committing together to a covenant community is not just good, it's necessary for us. You might be saying, I don't need anyone to be an arbiter of my relationship with Jesus. And I would say to you, agreed, there's only one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for it. However, I would also challenge you, it's really hard to walk in obedience to that Savior and ignore the need for church community in order to work out those commands. In fact, I would say it's impossible to do the one another's of the New Testament if there's no one another. Does that make sense? So ask yourself the why questions because I believe membership's not only biblical, I think that it's, and it's not only encouraged, I think if you, if you read the New Testament through any other lens, you're reading it through the wrong lens. There have always been a group of people who are committed to one another for the sake of growth, for the sake of God's glory. That's how it's always been since Acts chapter two, the spirit falls and immediately someone is taking down a record. His name is Luke. He says 3,000 people are saved. And I know some of us are just like, why in the world is everybody about numbers? It's not about numbers. It's about making sure that we care about the people who just came to know Jesus. That's what the apostles were doing. Because deep down, they have, they, they, you know they're not worried about numbers? Because they went from 5,000 people to 12 people in one day. It was in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They've seen a mega church go to a mini church before. They just cared about those who had committed themselves together. Okay, number two, what does membership mean? Membership means belonging to a covenant community centered on the gospel. So now you can turn back to Romans chapter number 12, and I want to read uh, Romans 12 and 1 Timothy 3 one more time. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God assigned. I believe that that is a precursor to talking about membership, because there's an inherent pride in thinking you can do Christianity by yourself. There's no such thing as lone wolf Christians. We're always meant to be together because we're meant to be dependent on God wholly and interdependent on one another. That's how God created us, as relational beings. When we were made in the image of God, we were made in the image of a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is constantly in relationship. And therefore, we too are constantly in relationship. And what happens after the fall is you start to see this isolation happen. So Adam and Eve are in shalom, they're in union together, they're in relationship together. After the fall, you start seeing that they have enmity with one another, there's isolation. Cain and Abel end up hurting, killing, one kills the other. That's a result of sin. God's original intent is for us to be in relationship. So I think what Paul's saying here is don't think of yourself so highly that you could do this by yourself. You're not the exception, you're the rule, <laughs> okay? And the rule is that we need each other. And that we've each been measured a measure of faith and gift that we could serve and encourage and edify one another. Okay, verse number four. For as in one body we have many members, there's the word, members, and the members, there's the word again, do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, here it is again, members one of another. So this is where we get the word member 
There's two times in your New Testament where the word member is used. Well, it's, it's used many more times, but it's used in two particular contexts. The first one is here, and it's members of a body, that we are members of the body of Jesus. Now, this is much different than being like a member at 24 or a member of a Rotary Club, right? Members of the body of Christ is uniquely different. It means members, in, the, in another word for it might be parts, because he's going to go on in Romans, also in, I think, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's going to say, uh, not all of us are an eye, not all of us are an ear, right? That, that's actual body parts. We are members one of another that need one another. We're interdependent in order to function well. Now, in 1 Timothy, you're going to see uh, the other example, 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verse 14 through 15. And this is paired up with last week's sermon, so it's, you're not actually going to see the word member, but I thought this actually speaks to it most clearly. Uh, I hope to come to see you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. This pairs with last week's sermon where in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are members of the household of God. So there's two types of members that are mentioned in the New Testament with Christians. Members of the body, members of the family. Members of the body, members of the family. Not members of your club, not members of a golf resort. Not, no, members of the body, members of the family. What is the New Testament after with those two analogies? Well, I think they're after these two things. Members of the body speaks to our unity, our function, and our purpose. If you're a note taker, this might be helpful. Members of the body speaks to our unity, our function, and our purpose. Members of the church are not meant to function alone. We function together. All throughout the New Testament, you find these analogies that when we all are working together properly, we grow, but then when we don't work properly, we weep with those who weep, we hurt with those who hurt. That if one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. There's a union in the body of Christ that when we commit together, we feel together, we laugh together, we act together, we move together, and that we're unified in a unique way. Number two, we function together and our purpose is together. So just like your hand doesn't function well without your wrist, wrist not without the elbow, elbow not without the shoulder, shoulder not without the rest of your body. If you're in the medical field, you get this. All of these things work together. That's how the church is meant to function. We're meant to function together. And all of us uniquely bringing our gifts to the table function as the body of Christ. Why the body of Christ analogy? Because we display Jesus's glory in the gospel when we function together. Now notice what's implicit here. If you try to do it alone, there's nothing glorious about a pinky being severed and laying on the ground. That's what we could be if we try to do it alone. Here's what also happens. You might think, well, I want to do it alone, and I'm not hurting anybody. Nope, that's impossible. You can't not hurt the body when you excommunicate yourself from it. The pinky couldn't say, well, I'm not hurting anybody by leaving. No, you hurt the whole body when you are cut off. Does this make sense? We're meant to be together. Now, what about members of the household, members of the family? I think this speaks to our identity, our responsibility, and our relationship. Our identity, our responsibility, and our relationship. Because we are members of the household of God, your identity is secure. You are a child of God forever and ever. That's what it means to be a member together. We commit to remind each other of our identity. You're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. We are brothers and sisters. Our identity is in Christ is affirmed when we commit ourselves to the people of God, right? Okay, number two, it also speaks to our responsibility to one another. Uh, when I was growing up, my brother, 
is six years older than I am. And my dad had this really hard and fast rule. Don't really think it's a great rule, but it was a rule. And he would tell my brother, you can go anywhere you want, son. You go to the party, you can go to, the only rule is you gotta take your brother with you. Now, what that led to was me learning a lot of things early that I didn't, I probably should not have learned, right? But my dad's idea was twofold, and he would tell my brother such. Number one, he thought it's gonna be a lot harder to bring a 10-year-old with you and be responsible for him while you're out trying to do crazy things. Number two, he would tell my brother, and if you take your little brother with you, it's your responsibility. You protect him. You care for him. You watch out for him. Never let him go alone. He had all these rules, right? So I remember distinctly, if I ever came home and like something crazy had happened, I remember I came home one time with a shirt that was ripped because, uh, you know, as a kid, you do something dumb. And my dad says, what happened to your brother? And my brother goes, I don't know. Which is kind of a typical like Cain and Abel, like I'm not my brother's keeper. And I remember my brother just getting laid into, what do you mean you don't know? Where were you? What were you doing? Why weren't you watching? Like just all these things. Now, again, don't know if that's a great rule or not, but here's what I do think you could take from it is that family members are responsible one for another. This is all the way back to God's engagement with Cain when he says, where's your brother? And he says, I'm not my brother's keeper. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus says, I call you my brothers and my friends. Jesus said, I'll be your keeper. He's our elder brother who was willing to go to the cross for us. Jesus cared for us. There was a responsibility that Christ took on his own shoulders to care for his brothers, even though they were wayward, right? This is what the older brother in the prodigal son parable was unwilling to do, but our older brother Jesus was willing to do, right? So there's a responsibility one with another when we're family members together, brothers and sisters. And lastly, that speaks to our relationship. I think there's so many things I could, so many so many different ways you could go here, but think about the beauty of relationships going from where we treat each other transactionally to where now we treat each other like brothers and sisters. That there's a holiness, that men and women that are not married have a holy brother and sister relationship and that that can be displayed before a world that's full of unholy, terrible, abusive relationships all over the place, right? That we get to treat each other like family and that that's meant to be a sign to the whole world that this, there, this is possible by the Spirit of God. And it's what God originally intended. Now, I want to make mention of this. Um, you know, church membership doesn't look like ownership. <laughs> the church doesn't own Christians. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our father. However, what church membership does do is it ups the ante a little bit that a lot of us want community without accountability, but church membership says community has to come with accountability. We need one another to hold each other accountable. We're not doing accountability without relationship, though. We include that, right? So it's not just someone that you don't know. It's someone who's committed themselves to you, who loves you, who cares about you, who has a brother-sister relationship. They're the ones that are willing to hold you accountable. That relationship comes with commitment. The commitment comes with expectations. The expectations are coupled with grace. Grace is paired with truth. Truth with humility, right? Humility with love. These are all these interconnected ideas of how the church is meant to function, but I think many of us, what we want is we want all of the benefits of what it means to be a part of the church, but we don't want the commitment that comes along with that. We don't want those responsibilities that come along with that. Or another way to put that would be, I love it whenever other people in home group minister to me, but then when I feel good, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't really need to go to home group. I feel really good. Who's there to minister to the ones who don't feel all that good if you're just going there whenever everybody else just kind of gives you the spirit injections? You know what I mean? But church community looks different than that. Okay, number three, and this is the last one. Why is it necessary? Like, why would the Bible want this? Is it just, again, to go back to my original point, it's just so pastors can get paid? 
No, no. Why, why is church membership necessary? Is it just so, you know, leaders can have, you know, their authority? No. Is it just, here's one I've heard that just kind of gets under my skin. Is it just therapeutic for people who are struggling with dealing with the common, common difficulties of life? No. Why does the New Testament encourage church membership? I have five reasons for note takers, and I'm going to roll through them quickly, as quickly as I go, which is very slowly. Okay, number one. Church membership is necessary because it provides a context for intentional discipleship and mission. Another way to put that would be we live out the New Testament commands in church community because there's not another way to do it. 55 times in your New Testament, you hear the word one another, and there's no way to one another without one another. There's no way to really one another unless we commit to one another, and that's what church membership looks like. So when we are commit to each other as church members, we don't have to guess when we think through our spiritual maturation, growth, or evangelism. Commitment to the local church allows us for the necessary ingredients for growth. Like we have leaders to submit to. We have a community to confess and repent of sin to. We share the gospel in word and in deed together. And not committing to membership gives us the opportunity to keep everybody at arm's length. It disallows leadership in our life. It disallows accountability in our life. And it perpetuates these isolationist tendencies that come all the way from the fall. So church membership allows us for this context through which we can grow in Jesus. Number two, Church membership protects us from Satan's sin and self. First Peter 5 says that the devil's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And the Bible always gives the church this analogy that we're like a flock of sheep. Sheep are not dangerous animals. Sheep cannot really do much of anything other than eat, okay? They don't have, a, but together they can fend off, right? We know the shepherd's the only hope. But when sheep are together, they're all, and they basically all back up together, they're much more likely to fend off the wolves, to fend off those that are trying to harm them. I don't know if you've ever seen Planet Earth, but this is basic, all right? And so the church community allows us to be protected from Satan, from sin, and from self. I wanna roll through those. It's not just the devil that's after you, it's your indwelling sin too. James chapter five says, confess your sins to one another and therefore be healed. How do you confess your sins one to another if you don't have the one another that's committed to you to do so? Your sin's rotting and killing you just as much as Satan wants to kill you. In fact, it's his number one tool, right? And then lastly, sometimes we think it's just sin, it's just Satan, and we forget that a lot of times it's ourselves, that we are our own worst enemy. That's why Romans chapter 12 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, because Paul's acknowledging that, that we are our own worst enemy, and we can think too highly of ourselves and fall right back into a worldly pattern. So how does the church protect? Well, we do a lot of things. We exhort one another, we encourage one another, we rebuke one another in love, right? We admonish one another, we pray for one another, we care for one another, we love one another, we support one another. First Thessalonians says it like this, there are some who are weak that need help, right? And so we come alongside and we help the weak. There are others who are idle that need to be admonished. So we come alongside the idle and say, hey, stop being spiritually lazy. And sometimes we need that, a good swift kick in the seat to get things going, right, spiritually. Anybody else ever needed that? Are we, are we in church or can we admit that you get spiritually lazy? I do. You know what I need? Someone to come alongside and say, hey, I know you're, you're, you're whining and everything's really tough and you're whining because you're the problem, right? We need that at times. And what prayerfully what we have is patience all for one another. Number three, and this is one that I, I, I rarely ever hear, but I think it's so important. Being a church member prepares you for eternal life prepares you for eternal life. Did you know that when you get to heaven, it's not just gonna be a one-bedroom hotel? Shocker, right? 
You won't be there by yourself. When you show up to the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's not just gonna be one table singularly with you know, two seats, Jesus and you. There's gonna be a ton of people there, right? Like, we need to remember, heaven's gonna be full of people. Those people are gonna eat together, live together, play together, worship together. That's what heaven's full of. Every depiction that we see in the New Testament of what eternity's gonna be like includes tons of people from all different tribes, nations, and tongues. It's why I've always encouraged people at Providence if they're like, you know, I just, I get frustrated because so-and-so doesn't think like me, and, and we're just not unified on these ideas. And, and I want to remind them that when they get to heaven, they're not going to just see a bunch of people who think their narrow theological thing is the thing. Like you're gonna sit at the marriage supper of the lamb and someone is going to sit across from you that di thought differently than you on theological nuance, shocker. And what we do when we're the church now is we learn to eat with them already. Like we don't have to wait to learn to live together, to care for one another, to love one another, even in our disagreements. The church is meant to mirror God's kingdom on earth as we gather and do life. We're rehearsing for God's eternal purposes. So that's amazing. Two other things. The church, church membership is necessary because it produces fruit in our life. The continual engagement of life in community produces patience, steadfastness, the fruit of the Spirit. We learn to love one another by being loved and by loving. We learn to honor one another by practicing honor and by being honored. We learn to forgive by being forgiven by Jesus and each other and by practicing forgiveness when you're wronged. We learn to be generous by practicing generosity and, check this out, by being the recipient of generosity. Have you guys ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced that, that you being greedy and then when someone is generous to you, it breaks those bonds a little bit of greediness because you realize, oh, that's how I ought to be? This is what the church is meant to do. And I think many times we miss this opportunity. Like, for instance, God may be trying to shape us to exhibit the fruit of forgiveness when we're sinned against, but we take being sinned against as an opportunity to exit. And we miss the opportunity to express the gospel by forgiving and then exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, is church membership pleases the heart of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. I believe that there are many things that Jesus saw which caused him to endure the cross, but I think at the forefront of that is the church of the living God, the bride that he was purchasing on the cross. And that Jesus saw a vision of the church and people committing together to live the life of the kingdom and that, that that produced endurance because he saw there would be joy there for him and for us. The purposes of God, Steve Timmis says it like this, God has always wanted a people that he might display his glory to and display his glory through. That that's been God's purposes ever since the very beginning when he created Adam and Eve. A people that he could display his glory to and he could display his glory through. And friends, that's the church a people that see God's glory in Jesus Christ and display God's glory to the world. And so by binding ourselves to a local church, we emphatically and we publicly declare that what Jesus did on the cross, it didn't just unite us to the Father, although that's primary, it united us to one another, and we want that to be a regular, everyday occurrence, that church membership at its best agrees with God's glorious purposes for you and for me. And so I wanna close with this thought the reason that I think the idea of membership is so important. Number one, if you're not a member, I would love for you to prayerfully consider it. Because I don't know if you know it right now, but there's a lot of joy. I'm not saying that there's not gonna be any difficulty, but there's a lot of joy in the covenant community of Christ. 
I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lot of opportunity for hardship, for heartache, for difficulty. But if we can rely on Jesus, there's a lot of opportunity for reconciliation, restoration, forgiveness, grace, love that we learn as we try to live together under the banner and name of Jesus. On the other hand, I would tell you that you don't know how lonely lonely is until you experience family. And so I wanna invite you into that. On my way in this morning, one of our elders, um, Butch Holmes, I don't know if some of you may know this, some of you may not, he, his son, and I'll try to keep this short, fell um, from a balcony about two weeks ago and he shattered his ankle and he, shattered, and he broke his femur in half got rushed to the hospital, and they didn't realize that the femur break was there until much later, and bone marrow went into his lungs, and his son had been having health problems. And so he, he has been in a medically induced coma because his, they can't get his breathing correct. And um, I called him this morning, or he called me this morning after us playing phone tag and just told me that things are just not going well. He won't wake up. And just basically saying, tell people to pray. We're believing for a miracle from God. This is his son. It's his first, it was his first child they adopted. Zach, there's a lot of stories be, behind uh, Zach's adoption. And my heart's just breaking. I'm, I'm breaking for him. And I'm trying to get my mind correct to, to prepare to preach this morning. And the Lord just brings up into my mind, this is why membership matters so much. Because as a family, when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. We weep together. We pray together. And maybe most importantly, when you feel like your faith is lowest, we bind our faith together to believe that God can do a miracle. Yes, we're there when sorrow hits that we can also have the comfort of God, but we also are believing and praying that God will do what only he can do. When you are almost out of hope, the family of God comes around you and believes with you. And so I wanna encourage you to believe with that family, believe for them, pray with them, send them encouraging texts, but the Lord put it on my heart, not just to share that, but to say, if you're not a member, it's what I want for you. It's what I believe God wants for you, is that you'd have a family of people that would come alongside you in those times. Number two, if you are a member, I just ask that you'd prayerfully consider this morning where the Spirit might be revealing to you that you're struggling to belong, where you're struggling to engage, where you ought to be engaging. Listen, that could be different for all of us, and I'm not coming with condemnation. I'm asking you, what's the Spirit saying? to your heart about where maybe you could engage as a member and love one another more fruitfully. And then lastly, and I would be really remiss to say this, if you're not a Christian this morning, I just wanna invite you into the family of God and I wanna make this abundantly clear. You do not have to sign a membership document to be in the family of God. Right now, where you're sitting, when you stand up, if you would believe on the name of Jesus who died for your sins to have eternal life, you can be in the family of God. And there's no signing that does that, thanks be to God. I believe there's beauty in membership covenants. There's beauty in committing to one another, but that's not what it means to be in Jesus. Amen? And I just wanna encourage you to trust Christ. So if you'll stand to your feet, I'd love to pray for us. Father, we do as a family pray for one of our elders, Butch, and his wife, Debbie that you would be with them, bring confidence to them, bring comfort to their hearts in the midst of sorrow. We lift up Zach to you, God. And as family and as members here at Providence, we ask God, would you do what only you can do and raise him up, heal his body, wake him up from 
the sleep that he's in, God, for your glory. When we have no hope, seemingly, in the eyes of the world, we trust you. And we call upon you, God, because you're a good father. And we ask that you'd hear us, Lord, from heaven. Also, Lord, for those under the sound of my voice that wrestle with the idea of being a member of the body of Christ, a local expression of your body. Lord, would you do something here at Providence that is inviting, is encouraging, is not just challenging, but comforting, not just comforting, but oppressing, urgency. God, would you do something in us that makes the gospel unignorable in our city? And Lord, help us to be the spotless bride that you saw in your heart when you gave your life up. We love you, Lord, and we trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.